Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. A more excellent way. A study in the power and priority of love. I, I don't do a lot of series except for you know those three-part, two-part series I do all in one day and then we break them up online. But this is sort of like a series, I guess. I've been going through... It seems like I'm always hitting on 1 Corinthians somehow, some way. You see, there was a problem in the church at Corinth, and that is that they had missed what it was really about. Uh, they had lost sight of the center point, which we could say is Jesus Christ and him crucified, which is Paul's message to the church at Corinth. That's the church that he spoke that to, that he's determined to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. You see, there was a schism constantly, contention in the body, and there was a breakdown of unity. And so Paul's starting out in the book of Corinthians, and he's beckoning them back to the way that the body of Christ is supposed to function. It's supposed to function with one mind, one spirit, one purpose. We're supposed to be knit together, and yet there were schisms. And so you had the two extremes. Uh, and so one of the key ways that we've oftentimes described it in history, and in Christian history, is you have the, the group that you know, heads over one direction and they're more classified oftentimes as the liberals or they, they lean towards licentiousness where they throw out all law. It's called antinomianism by some, uh, licentiousness by others. Basically, it's like a license to sin. So grace is now redefined to excuse any and all behavior. And so you have one schism in, uh, in Corinth that goes off this way. And then you have the other side which has a tendency to emphasize law and the legalities of things. And so Paul strikes a middle chord. He says something that is supposed to solve the issue. And 2,000 years ago, I can't really study the church of Corinth in such detail. All we have is the scriptural statements on it to really know how Paul's letter affected it. But we know that he obviously needed to write a second letter. So they had issues just like we do today. And Paul gives the solution in that book. And yet here we are 2,000 years later or so, and we have the exact same issues. And guess which book we quote from? Supporting our issues, but 1 Corinthians. Some of the same exact schisms are created in Paul attempting to address the schisms. And we miss his whole point in the book of 1 Corinthians. So here I am harping on that one point again. You can see it in my subtitle. It's obvious. You see, the high point in 1 Corinthians is 1 Corinthians 13. It's love. Paul is showing a more excellent way. He's, guys, guys, it's not that you are absent of truth. It's that you're distorted in what you have. You're missing something greater that solves the riddle that you're struggling with. And so this is a study in the power and priority of love. Because it's not just 1 Corinthians where the pivotal point and the high point is of 1 Corinthians 13. But out of all of history, there's a pivotal point known as the cross. And that cross solves 
all of this debate between New Testament liberty and Old Testament law. It solves it. It is the key that unlocks the whole thing, but you have to be able to let down your argument. In, in Corinth, they had, you know, I'm with Apollos, and I'm with Paul, and they were splitting. Now, when Apollos said, I have a hunch, was true. And what Paul said, I have a hunch, was true. However, they were splitting over it. So what was going wrong? Well, let's address it. So here's a quote from the Apostle Paul. I show you a more excellent way. And then that's the very conclusive statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And then what happens in the very first sentence of 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Love. The more excellent way is dot, 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 love. Okay, now that's just uh, me putting a little quote up there to just get us revved up. It's funny because I'm not even going to quote 1 Corinthians 13 today. I'll try and restrain myself. Here, after I say it now, there'll be a juicy moment where I'm going to have to quote it. But I just want to show you that the Bible, all the entire Bible supports what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13. Jojo and the shoes. Now, this is a, you know, going back to an illustration I used when I was talking about 1 Corinthians 13. But David Wilkerson is, this is in the cross of the switchblade. David Wilkerson is working in uh, inner city New York City. And there's a gang member named Jojo. And Jojo is, his home is a park bench. The guy has never had new shoes in his entire life. And so David Wilkerson has some new polished up uh, shoes, and he's going down there to, to reach those on the streets. And uh, so he's trying to speak to Jojo. Jo, Jojo basically spits upon him and says, Preacher, I have no interest in what you have to say to me. And so David Wilkerson continues to follow him, and he, says, uh, he sits down next to him on the park bench. And David Wilkerson says, So where's your home, Jojo? He says, you're sitting in it. And he realized this man has nothing. He's a gang leader and he has power in the gangs, but he has nothing. He's, he's void of any hope in life and he's void of any maternal, paternal affections. This man needs Jesus and he needs him bad. And yet there's an impediment between David Wilkerson and this uh, gang leader. And ironically, David Wilkerson begins to figure out what it is. Like, preacher... Look, I'm not like you. You're not like me. Look at, look, I, look at your shoes. And David Wilkerson looks down at his shoes, and he looks at uh, JoJo's ragtag shoes that are probably taped up, and he realizes there's an impediment between him being able to share the gospel with JoJo. So what does David Wilkerson do? He removes the shoes, and he gives them to JoJo. He says, JoJo, you're making such a fuss about my shoes? Here you go. They're yours. He goes, I don't want your shoes. He says, they're yours. Well, you're talking about them so much. He's like, I've never had a pair of new shoes. Now you do. You see, the church at Corinth is watching this scene. And the church at Corinth breaks into two camps. One is now known as the Shoeless Brigade. Because what they've seen is a picture of love. It worked. Jojo's life has changed. He gives his life to Jesus Christ. Voila. So now we formulate the whole thing. And so now there's a whole sector of Christianity that walks around without shoes. And is it right that they're willing to give up their shoes? Absolutely. However, what is this story about? The story is not about Wearing shoes or not wearing shoes. It's being willing to give up whatever impediment could possibly stand in the way to reach Jojo. And in this situation, it just happened to be shoes. And so what we do in the church is we have a tendency to make something more out of it than what was intended. So now we have the shoeless brigade over here, typically known as the legalists. And then Apollos comes into town. You know, because let's say Paul was the one. Instead of David Wilkerson, it was Paul that gave away his shoes. So now this, is, this group is Paul, and they never wear shoes. And then you have Apollos that comes into town, and someone comes up and says, is it okay to wear shoes? And he goes, 
Why would you ask? Well, I'm just asking. Just, could you give me an answer? Just scripturally speaking, biblically speaking, is it right to wear shoes? Is it okay to wear shoes? Yes. I mean, there's, you're at perfect liberty to wear shoes. And someone goes, aha! And now you have those that are at liberty to wear shoes whenever they want. And even if JoJo asks for the shoes, guess what? Hey, I have liberty. Apollo said so. And so as a result, they're really missing the whole point. And so is this group over here. However, Paul comes into Corinth. He goes, guys, why in the world are you over here and over here? There is one thing that solves this riddle, and it is love. You see, in each situation, love is the highest decision, the highest action, the most excellent way. In every circumstance, when you make that choice, you solve this dilemma that splits the church. The law. Oh. See, a lot of us want to boo when we hear the law. I mean, we're New New Testament Christians. And yet there's others of you that are strangely attracted to the law, and you actually feel a little uncomfortable with your attraction to the law, because it says so many wise and moral things that you feel obligated to maybe start studying it and maybe start doing it, because obviously maybe you know that you're saved by grace and the righteousness of Christ is your righteousness, but what am I supposed to do with this? I mean, are we supposed to nullify and cut out half the Bible and throw it out? Or are we supposed to look at it, study it, and maybe even begin to practice some of what it says? The law. Uh, The Hebrew mind would refer to it a little differently. They'd refer to it as the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, but it's also known as Moses. And so when you hear the term Moses, typically it's what the Torah says. The Torah in in the Hebrew would be the understanding of an instructor or a teacher. There is an instructor or a teacher, and the New Testament would refer to it as a tutor. It is someone that is instructing you in something, okay? So I'm going to give you a subtitle for the law here. We're going to call it the forerunner of the Messiah. It's that which comes before the Messiah, crying in the wilderness, saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. There is something that comes before the Messiah, and he is going to let you know, this is he. This is the one. You see, the law has a very, very important place in our life as Christians. However, if it gets out of that place, it's the equivalent of a fire getting out of a fireplace. There's a nice spot for a fire, and as long as you keep that fire in the hearth, guess what? It adds warmth, beauty. Oh, it's wonderful. But if it gets outside, it burns down the whole thing. Okay, so we need to make sure that we know the context for the law and where it is supposed to be in our life. Those that say, oh, law, and they just stomp on it and spit upon it, oftentimes live a very inappropriate life. However, those that serve the law and put it in too unhealthy of a position and relegate their life underneath it actually live a very unhealthy life as well. The law, the forerunner of the Messiah. I'm going to declare to you that the law is perfectly crafted to showcase the Christ. When you study the law, you actually should see one very specific thing. Not how you are supposed to live, but you're supposed to see the Messiah. You're supposed to see the one who is to come. The law shows you something. The law is a voice. It is a tutor. It is an instructor saying, this is who he will be. When he comes, you will recognize him because of this, 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 and this. You see, the law is perfectly crafted for a very, very specific purpose. So I'm going to liken it to something, and I'll use this uh, symbol throughout this message. As the ring mount shows the brilliance of the diamond. There's a ring mount. I think I have a picture of it here. The mount is the bottom portion. Now, I'm not a jeweler, 
So if I say something a little incorrectly, you know, try and overlook those things. However, I at least know that these things are true, okay? So uh, the mounting is the portion that is built to hold something very important. Okay, now if I were to ask you which one's more valuable, the mounting or the head, I, I think you'd be very awkward if you said, let's throw out the head and just keep the mounting. Yeah, that wouldn't make any sense at all, and that's exactly the way the law is. You see, the law is the mounting, and it is preparing you to receive the one who will set perfectly inside of it. And when he comes, he will match this. He will set in this, and there is no other gemstone that could possibly fit this. So when he comes and he fits it, you will know that it is he. And the law has served its purpose. So the interesting thing is when you study, again, I'm not a jeweler, okay? But this top portion is actually, that that portion right at the bottom of the head is known as the gallery. It's like that which showcases. Isn't that interesting? It's actually called the gallery, and that's called the head. And so when you think about this entire structure, it gives you a whole new understanding of how even the Christian life is to work. So, but which is greater, the ring mount or the gem? Which one must take priority? When the gem comes, which one should become lesser in your mind? Uh, any thoughts to that, that end? We have a, a very significant movement in conservative Christianity today back to Judaism. Now, they wouldn't call it that. They would call it back to our Hebrew beginnings or our Hebrew roots. However, it's very, very important to recognize that Jesus doesn't take us back. He is actually establishing something greater. And so if you miss that in your understanding of the new covenant and the work of Jesus Christ, it can really trip you up in your Christian development in life. So which one must take priority? I think it would be very awkward to say that the law is greater than Jesus. That wouldn't even make sense. In fact, the whole New Testament is going to rebut that notion if you think it right now. The law. We're going to call it the first mounting. In other words, there is something upon which the glory of God is setting. And it is the Hebrew commonwealth. It is the Old Testament system of law and government. And this is the device that God chose to use through which to reveal his glory unto the nations. So the law shows the need for something greater. There's one thing, when we call it, a, we call it the Torah, we call it the instructor or the teacher or the tutor, what's it teaching us? It's teaching us that there is a need for something greater. You see, the law itself cannot actually produce glory. There is something else that must rest upon it. And so in and of itself, it is insufficient to shine with the luster and to maintain the beauty and to show the value that it's supposed to show. I mean, just take a mount by itself. I mean, how impressive is that going to be? It's begging something more, and that's exactly what the mount itself says. That's what it instructs you. It is convicting you of sin. It is showing you that you are insufficient as you currently stand, and there is something else that is needed beyond you. And of course, we could say, well, it's the gem. In other words, in and of yourself, you are not complete. In and of yourself, you are insufficient. That's what the law tells you. That's what the mounting, the first mounting, is going to explain to you. Uh, look, you look, look a little awkward here. It's like you're reaching out for something to hold something. It's called the gallery, the head. You're supposed to be showing something. However, all I see is your head. It's like, what? What's my head doing there? Self is in the way. What's wrong with this? The mounting. So the, the law, the first mounting, shows the need for something greater. So that we would recognize the gem when he comes. You see, the reason you were built this way 
is to hold a different head than yourself. You are not to be the top. There is something else that is supposed to come in and rest in that holding spot known as you. And so the law comes in and proves this weakness to us and prepares us to receive the gem. Oh, well, there's a mountain without a gem. Look at that guy. It's not as impressive as that previous ring I wish. By the way, this is a ring turned sideways. Sorry, I, I should have explained that. If I turned it a little to the side, you could have seen a little circle in the middle where you can stick a finger through. It's like a signet ring. You see, this is, it's preparing us. It's saying, uh, excuse me, but something's missing here. Yeah, uh, you know, isn't there a gem that's supposed to go in there? And God says, mm-hmm, good. I'm glad you caught that. You see, the law is a schoolmaster which leads us to Christ. That's what it says in the New Testament. The law is a tutor, a teacher. It's a Torah that leads us to something. What does it lead us to? Something greater. Something greater than the law. John the Baptist. Remember how I said the law is a forerunner? It's a voice crying in the wilderness saying, prepare ye the way. What does John the Baptist symbolize? He symbolizes the one from the wilderness. Where, where was the law received? In Sinai, in the wilderness. You see, there's a voice crying in the wilderness. He's an instructor so that you would not miss the Messiah when he comes. John the Baptist meets Jesus at the Jordan. It's the crossing. It's the great divide. And then Jesus begins his ministry in the land of promise. You see, this is the handoff from the Old Testament to the New. It's a symbol of the law christening and dedicating, saying, this is him. He fits it perfectly. John was a perfect picture of a mountain. He could declare. He had the authority given by God to declare, this is him. Now, what's interesting about John is John came before Jesus. And yet he actually declares, and even though I'm before him, the one that comes after me is greater. So John is known as the forerunner. He's also known as the friend of the bridegroom. The one, and by the way, the friend of the bridegroom is the one that takes care of the bride when the groom is going away to prepare a place. And when the bridegroom comes, it says that the friend of the bridegroom must diminish or must decrease so that the bridegroom would increase. Okay, now I'm setting a stage for something so you understand how the law works. The law is a teacher, an instructor. And when he has fulfilled his task of leading you to the conclusion, you need a savior, and this is that savior. Then his role and his purpose changes. The forerunner, the one from the wilderness, he comes before, but he is lesser. His job is merely to point to the one who is greater, then step back and be silent. Huh. There stands one among you, says John the Baptist, whom you do not know. It is he coming after me that is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. You see, John is, if you were to imagine his voice being the voice of the law or the old covenant, he is the completion of the old he is the final messenger of the old covenant and the law. And what does he bring us to? The gemstone, the whole point of it all. Did you think the point of it was that you would be righteous with the law? All the law showed you was that you aren't righteous. The law doesn't make you righteous. The law showed you the one that is righteous and proved to you that you were unrighteous. The law is setting up the stage. So imagine that the law was saying to you, there stands one among you whom you do not know, O Israel. It is he 
who coming after me is preferred before me. In other words, the one that is coming following the law, the one that the law points to is actually greater. He is preferred by God above the law whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. The law humbles itself and says, though I'm initiated and inaugurated by God, I am unworthy to even unstrap the latchet of this sandal. The gem is the whole point. Who could argue? And ironically, in conservative Christianity today, a lot of people do. But I'm going to strengthen my case. Jesus Christ You see, I'm going to refer to him as the gemstone. It's what the law points to. He's the fulfillment of the law. The one of promise from the promised land. He comes after. He's second. The second is the one that God always prefers throughout Scripture. Cain, Abel. He prefers the second. It's the second offering that pleases him. The first one's born of the flesh. The second one is of the spirit. Ishmael, Isaac. Esau, Jacob, also known as Israel. Saul, David. Old covenant, new covenant. First Adam, second Adam. That which is done in the first Adam is not satisfying to God. That which is done in the second Adam pleases God. So, but he is greater than his predecessor, for his predecessor is his servant. Did you you hear that? For his predecessor is his servant. That means John the Baptist is the servant, or the law is the servant of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not the servant of the law. The law is the servant of Jesus Christ. I'll give you the scriptural backing for this as we move forward. For his predecessor is his servant, commissioned for the singular purpose of revealing his coming and the importance of it. So you have the mounting, the law down below, and you have the gem. What does the mounting say? It says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, this is who can save you. I can't. I'm merely a mountain. I can't do the saving, but I'll show you the one who can. That's all that matters is this gem that is coming. May I as a mountain decrease, says the law, that I would not get in the way of the one who is coming. The forerunner. So I'm using the forerunner as a loose concept of talking about the law and specifically of John the Baptist. Well, I could also use it of two characters known as Moses and Elijah. Moses, of course, he wrote the first five books known as the Torah, the instructor, the, uh, the teacher, the tutor. But then Elijah would be symbolic of the prophets. So the whole Old Covenant, the whole Old Testament is actually a compilation of what we typically, even though it has wisdom writings, we would typically describe in short as the law and the prophets. What do the law and the prophets testify of? Who do they show? They show one singular man who's also God. This one man must be born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. He must be born of the seed of a woman, for it will be that seed that will crush the head of the serpent. There's very specific things declared in this law and the prophets in such granular detail written thousands of years beforehand that when he comes, we would know that he is the gemstone. So the law and the prophets state, this is who is to come. So what do we have here? Moses and Elijah. You know that they came and testified that Jesus is the gemstone? I know it sounds strange, but they did. I I can't explain how it all worked and how they knew they were Moses and Elijah. We just know that they were. Mount of Transfiguration. 
Jesus turns a bright white. And Moses and Elijah are there with him. And God Almighty, Jehovah, booms out of heaven. Hear him. This is my son. Hear him. The three-part testimony. Old covenant passing along the torch. The I am that burned in the bush. Moses that wrote the first five books. And all the prophets testify in agreement. The chief lawgiver and the chief prophet. All say, this is the one. Are we missing something? Did you miss that he's the one? Who's it all about? Hear him. Who are we supposed to hear? Jesus. Jesus is the gemstone. The one that comes after is greater. Now, I'm just going to put some weight on that. I don't know if I could stack some some weights on top of it, let it just really feel the gravity in your soul. The one that comes after is greater than that which precedes it. Jesus, though John the Baptist is an amazing man, and that's not to decry him or diminish him in even the slightest bit. This isn't to kick the law and to say it's bad. This is to declare what the scriptures themselves say, and that is that which follows is greater. Boom. Period. No, exclamation mark. Okay, there's no reason to argue it. Jesus is greater than the law. Boom. I said it again, didn't I? Hopefully you're hearing it. The first teacher, we'll call them the law. You know that Pentecost is a measurement of seven sevens after the Passover. So you take the day after the Passover and you measure seven sevens. And the day which follows is the 50th day. And that's what Pentecost means. It means 50th. The first Pentecost, even though it's not called that in the Old Testament, every Jew knows that the Pentecost was actually celebrated in the Old Testament. And the Feast of Pentecost just happened to be what we see in Acts 2 in the New Testament. So a lot of Christians think that the Pentecost originated in the book of Acts. Oh, no. It's actually a celebration, get this, of the giving of the teacher, the giving of the Torah, the giving of the law. God, with his own finger, writes the Ten Commandments. You see, the first teacher is the law. It's the Torah. And that's the first Pentecost. Don't miss this because this is critical. God gave the first teacher at the first Pentecost. Okay? Pentecost is a symbol of giving a teacher, an instructor, a helper. God has given a greater helper than law. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-huh. I'm saying this stuff. Aren't I just letting it fly today? I called it the first mountain, by the way. The first mountain was given at the first Pentecost. Oh, there it is. That's a nice mountain. There's nothing wrong with it. It was made well. It was made well for its purpose. However, if it was sufficient, God wouldn't have had to create a new mountain. Did you hear that? God himself says this in the New Testament over and over again. If this was sufficient for God's purposes, he wouldn't have had to create a new mountain. He wouldn't have made a new covenant. If this could have done it, he wouldn't have made another one. This was sufficient for his purposes. But his purposes were greater than the old covenant. So, a new covenant was necessary. The jewel of grace finally comes. So we have the first Pentecost. The first mountain is given. It looked nice. I mean, you have to admit, that's a nice mountain. All the Jews could stand back and go, wow, we were entrusted with this. They were. They were entrusted with the first mountain. What a privilege to be the ones to bear witness of the coming gem. They had the testimony. And they got to see and witness the glory of God in their midst. However, the glory of the first temple 
fails to even come close to the glory of the latter temple. That which God is building is greater than that which precedes it. And that which precedes it is unworthy to even untie the latchet of the sandal of that which is coming. Oh boy. For those of you that have a leaning towards Judaism, this is a really tough message. And he perfectly matches the instruction of the first teacher. So the first teacher is not wrong. The first teacher is right. The first teacher is good, upright, and righteous. There is nothing wrong with the first teacher. Don't kick the first teacher. The first teacher did his job well. The first teacher instructed you that you need a savior. The first teacher convicted you of sin and showed you that you were controlled by something known as the power of sin and the flesh. And without that first teacher, you do not see even your purpose and your need for a gemstone. You don't see it. The law is perfect in converting the soul. The law is what labors. But the law has a job, and that is to lead us to the Jordan. To lead us there and say, there he is. My job is done. My job is to convict you of your sin and show you that you need a gemstone. But it's also to tell you, behold, the gemstone has come. So look at that. There's the humongous gemstone into this little diddly squat mountain known as the law. Jesus comes down from heaven, perfectly fulfills the law, and then he says, but I have something greater. You see, there's something greater than just fulfilling the Old Testament law and saying, yes, I came. He's establishing something, something greater than just fulfilling the Old Testament. It's to establish something beyond it. The second teacher. So at the second, or the second Pentecost that we know of, there were many Pentecosts, every year had a Pentecost called the Feast of Pentecost. However, the Pentecost that most of us are familiar with in the New Testament, after Jesus Christ rises and ascends to the right hand of the Father, he says, it is, it is good for you, it is appropriate for you, it is beneficial to you that I don't stay here. We're like, what? Because if I go to be with the Father, I can give you another helper. He's giving us something grand, something great that we did not have in that way before. You see, the law could only accomplish so much in that it was weakened through the sinful state of the mountain. The mountain and those that were attempting to hold up the great grand gem and to point to it were very weak and feeble. And as a result, it was weakened through the flesh. But the second teacher is not so. The second teacher is God himself come down to dwell inside of his church. He's known as the Holy Spirit. So the second Pentecost, we'll call it the second mountain. Now this is going to be a crucial slide for you. It's a greater mountain. Now you can see inside that gold band, which is a lot grander and greater, you see the previous band. In other words, what this second band does, known as the Spirit of God, the instructor, that which upholds the glory of God, that which is only capable and the only thing ever to come to this earth that is actually able to uphold this glory, inside of it is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, the Spirit of God does not desecrate the law and spit upon it. He goes beyond it. It's called a more excellent way. You see, the law limits you in its letter. For instance, you could say, 
Uh, we have the classic illustration in the Old Testament of David and the showbread. I don't know if any of you guys remember that, but David's running from Saul. He's hungry. His men are hungry. And he comes to Ahithophel, uh, who's a priest, and uh, a high priest, and he goes in, and, uh, and so there's some showbread there. They don't have any common bread, only the bread that was dedicated in the temple. Well, this is an awkward situation. David and his men are hungry. Ahithophel makes the decision to give David the showbread. You know what? That's a violation of the letter of the law. Only the priests can eat that showbread. Ahithophel makes a decision to give the showbread to David. You know that Jesus in the New Testament backs up that decision? Why? Jesus himself says, because it was a more excellent decision. He, did, he fulfilled righteousness. It was an act of love. You see, love is the fulfillment of the law. When all you have is the letter, you miss the greater band. But up to this point, because of the weakness of our flesh, we couldn't walk in the love of God. And as a result, we were ill-equipped to actually showcase the glory of God at the height and the level and the grandeur it was intended. The new covenant gives us a grace, gives us a spirit to be able to lift up this jewel even higher with something known as the spirit, but also referred to by John especially as love. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry. So we have the ministry of the law in the Old Testament, the ministry of the priests. They were the ones that did the ministry of the temple. Then Jesus, it says he has obtained a more excellent ministry. Where did he obtain that ministry from? It was from heaven. So what he's obtaining is from heaven. It's actually, it's not of the priestly order of the Levites. It's actually of a different order. And what it says in scripture is when there's a new priestly order, there's a new law that is established. And the writer of Hebrews just acts like that's totally obvious. If you have a new priestly order, there's a new law because those priests need to be run by a new law. All of us are like, oh, well, oh, what, how does this all work? There's a new law. But now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry because he's of the order of Melchizedek. There's a new law that comes in and Hebrews is declaring it's more excellent. It's higher. It's better. It is not lesser inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant. Better. Key word. Don't miss this. More excellent. Better. Beyond. Which was established on better promises. I mean, there's some great promises in the Old Testament. Better. Why? Because now you can do it. It doesn't just say you need to. and says, yeah, and if you keep the law in perfect righteousness, then you'll be righteous with God, which you can't do. But it actually gives you a law that actually enables you. It's called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And it doesn't just tell you a high standard of Christ, but it gives you the grace to live it. It's a better promise. Better promises for if that first covenant had been faultless. Whoa, did I just read that? It's, it has fault. Isn't that a strange thing? It has fault. If it had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Who's the one seeking the place for a second? God himself. Who gave Jesus the more excellent ministry? Father, God. This is something initiated by God, not by men. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Well, that's a pretty extreme statement. The first is obsolete. Another part of Hebrew says it's annulled. You know what that means? Legally, it has no more hold or weight upon you. It doesn't mean it was bad. It just means it's obsolete. If you were married to someone and that person died, well, then you would, at 
marriage would be annulled in the sense that that marriage bond or covenant would not prohibit you from entering into a covenant with someone new. And the same is true in our relationship with God. There was a previous covenant relationship that we had with law. It's called the law of sin and death. And therefore, unless we prove perfectly righteous in accordance with the law of God, then we are under just condemnation and separation from God wherein we'll be separated and thrown into a place of judgment for all of eternity where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mm -hmm. It's called bad news. However, in the midst of this, this first covenant was unable to save. Whereas the second covenant has the offer of salvation. And it is not without law, it is a higher law. It's what's called a more excellent way. And when you live in accordance with this higher law, known as love in the New Testament, known as the law of liberty, it's known as the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, it has various names, you actually fulfill, you do not transgress the Old Testament. Let's not you start going out and steal. Now it's like, I don't need to worry about that. Or you just totally ignore anything of God's nature. God's nature is still perfectly fulfilled. However, it's not fulfilled in relationship to an Old Testament law. It's fulfilled in relation to law and that which is more excellent. Now that which is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The new mounting I give to you. A new helper I give to you. So I know that doesn't sound like the normal way that you would think about it, but God is basically saying, hey guys, I'm giving you a new mountain. You know that he actually gives a new commandment in the, in the New Testament? Jesus does. He comes and he basically says, guys, I'm establishing a new mountain. I'm establishing a new law. I'm establishing a new commandment. Old things are passing away. He is actually nullifying any legal hold that an Old Testament an old Torah has. The first teacher is now silent. I am giving you a new teacher, which is better. This new teacher actually knows more. This new teacher comes with better promises. It's like the full package. Not just a teacher that tells you what you have to do, but then doesn't enable you to do it, but a teacher that shows you the standard of my life and then enables you to do it. The New Testament doesn't have a low standard. You've heard it said, do not look at a woman lustfully, but I tell you, If anyone lusts after a woman in his heart, he's committed adultery with her. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, any man who says, what's the word, you know, something like, you fool, has committed murder in his heart. Oh, high standard, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Oh, new covenant speech. Your righteousness is supposed to exceed those that try and keep the law. Good luck. Good luck, Christians, trying to keep that. So all of us go back to the law. We're like, okay, I need to work like a Pharisee. Oh, no. There's a work that is done on your behalf. And if you understand how the new covenant works, it's very exciting. So a new mountain I give to you. But look at the other way I put it. A new helper I give to you. Your old helper, your old teacher could only lead you to the gem. But this new helper leads you inside the gem. It literally fulfills everything. It completes you. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. There's the new commandment. In fact, all throughout the New Testament, you're going to begin to hear this new commandment fulfills all of the old law. All of it is dealt with just in this one commandment. Love one another. As I have loved you, 
that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You see, in the Old Testament, the Judaism, you would know someone was a disciple or a disciple of the Torah by externals. That's how you would know them, the way they dressed, what they ate. You would know them by days of the week. You would understand them by feasts and celebrations. There's various things that would herald an understanding of a Jew. Jesus in the New Testament says, I'm giving you a new commandment. You will know those that follow my teaching by something very specific. And it's not by the fact that they keep the law. It's, or by external circumcision, by the way. That was another external. You will know them by their love for one another. The more excellent way So Paul says, I show you a more excellent way. The church at Corinth is bickering, dickering, in contention on both sides. Jojo's shoes, we can wear shoes. Oh, it's shoeless brigade. I mean, this is, it's chaos. We have every chaotic point of doctrinal contention in 1 Corinthians. It's ironic because most of us argue about the very same things using 1 Corinthians as our guide. Paul, in the midst of it, says, hey, guys, I'm showing you a more excellent way. You want to understand how this works? It's okay to wear your shoes. I'm telling you right now, it's okay to have shoes. Wear shoes. Paul would even say, I wear shoes. Even though I gave away my shoes to Jojo when I was in town, I went out and got some more. Okay, there's nothing wrong with having shoes. But if you find a Jojo that is in need of shoes or your shoes are offending his soul and it's causing him to stumble, give up your shoes. He says, I would gladly give up my shoes till the world goes without end. I just said that sentence very awkwardly. Till the world is, till the world without end. I don't remember how he said it. In other words, the point is a more excellent way, and it's called love. Love is your guide, and when you love, you don't end up in one ditch or the other, but you end up reaching Jojo with the nature of Jesus Christ. It's actually called righteousness. You want to fulfill all righteousness? Well, then love. Look at this word. You know that this word is the word excellent here in this sentence? What does that look like? Uh, yeah, it looks like the word hyperbole, which it is. But in the Greek, it's not pronounced that way. It's like hyperbole. I, I added some kind of Spanish accent to that. Uh, but it's the same word. Look at what it means. A throwing beyond. beyond or superiority, excellence, preeminence, beyond all measure. Paul's saying, I'm giving you an answer which is so far beyond all measure, beyond what you're doing right now. You guys think you're pleasing God by keeping the law or saying, hey, I have liberty in Christ Jesus. Both are true. We must live in accordance with the truth. We don't want to transgress the nature of our God. So these people over here that are living in licentious is saying, hey, I can do whatever I want. These people over here are saying, hey, we must have a standard. There must be some better way to live. And these people over here are looking at these religious you know, people stuck in the mud over here going, hey, you're not enjoying the liberty that we have in Christ Jesus. Both sides are correct and both sides are completely wrong at the same time. They're both missing the better way. Jesus Christ came. The picture is like the Olympics, hyperbole. You take your javelin and they have a measurement. Let's say it's a football field. Okay, I don't actually know how far javelins go. Maybe they go five football fields. I don't know. But let's say all they measure out is a football field. And up to this point, the farthest as anyone's ever thrown is a, is a football field. And so this one goes clear to the edge. And we're like, wow, what a great throw. Jesus comes up and throws it 30 miles. We don't have any measurement for that. How, how are we going to measure this? Does your tape measure go? It's hyperbole is what it is. It is so far beyond. That's what Paul is saying. 
I'm going to show you a way so far beyond. It's superior. It's more excellent. It's preeminent. It's beyond all ability to measure. The Christian and the Jewish law. For I say to you, this is Jesus, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees are the, you know, they, they keep like every little bit of it. Jot, tittle, letter, you know, it's all like done. They have it all ceremonially mapped out. You know, they will only go this far on a Sabbath day and then they'll stop. Uh, they have it all figured out, guys. But unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. Let's look at righteousnesses in a more simple way because I have more high-tech definitions of it. But just being right with God. It's like God says, that's right. That's the way it's supposed to be. Right there, right there. That's the behavior I'm looking for. True righteousness is Jesus. And when Jesus comes, you you don't want to just be keeping your law, staring at the floor, saying, okay, I need to do it. You see Jesus, and he is righteousness. You see, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees have a form of rightness, but it actually doesn't please God. Paul noticed that. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He says, all my righteousness is his filthy rags. It's nothing. It's a pile of junk next to what he's done. I'll show you a better way, says Paul. He is that way. Jesus is that way. It's his righteousness. The secret to a Christian isn't whipping up righteousness. It's knowing that he has lived that life and climbing inside of it and making that our home and living inside of love, the spirit. So the Jewish law, here's my summary. The Jewish law is good and right. You see, when people criticize the Jewish law and they make it sound like it's some heinous crime and they joke, poke fun at it and mock it, uh, I wouldn't do that if I were you. This is the word of God. It was entrusted, given by God, and it is sacred text. It is living, and it actually is useful for training you in righteousness. I know that sounds very strange compared to what I'm saying right now. However, what does it teach you? It teaches you who Jesus is. You see, what it does, it's a useful tool. You know the reason that we have confidence that Jesus is the Messiah? is because of the law and the prophets. If you throw out the law and the prophets, no longer do we have strength and position knowing that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. The first establishes the second. Moses and Elijah say, hear him. Don't throw out Moses and Elijah. Be very watchful in how you do that. However, your relationship to Moses and Elijah and your relationship to John the Baptist has changed because a greater one has come, one greater than Moses. What what does Jesus even say? Before Abraham was, I am. He is God. Hey, if he's come, let's give him the preeminence. Let's make sure he's in the gallery and he's the head. Why in the world are we arguing about these things? So the Jewish law is good and right. It was an extraordinary mounting to help us recognize the gem of Jesus when he came. But the Jewish law has been outthrown the javelin has gone so much farther and exceeded by a greater law. Those are two key words that are used in the New Testament, hyperbole and better by a greater law, a royal command, a new covenant. I give you a new commandment. It has been magnificently surpassed and outshone by a mounting that God considers even more good and more right. God himself is declaring to you, this is actually more righteous. This is more right. So if you do this, 
in accordance with the Spirit. You try and love one another in your own power and strength, all you're doing is doing the same thing the Old Testament had. You just have one law now, and you're trying to keep it in your own strength. You're trying to be the mountain for the glory of God. You can't do it. He has done it. And when you enter into him and trust him and his spirit fills you, guess what? It's called the spirit of love. And now as you heed that spirit and follow that spirit, you love as he loves. The law is right, yes, but there is something even more right than the law. Can you imagine that I would even say that? I mean, the law is perfect. The law doesn't show. Yeah, to convert the soul, it's perfect. To do its job, it is perfect. It is perfectly situated like a puzzle piece to fit into the revelation of the Messiah. But it can't save you. The Messiah saves. When you put your confidence in the first, you lose the benefit of the second. The second is the one that saves. There is something even more right than the law. There it is. There it is. Take a good look. Love. Uh, New Testament, the Greek would call it uh, agape. That which outthrows the law. The law can reach only so far. And God says, hmm, no, not sufficient. And then Jesus comes down, takes up the javelin. (sighs) No measurement for that. What was that? Well, that was a javelin throw. That's the way you're supposed to throw it. And all of us are looking at the law going, okay, so if I just keep these dietary codes and commands, then I can do that too? No. I'm going to show you a more excellent way. You see, that isn't going to enable you to throw it. That just showed you that you needed to be throwing the javelin and you weren't throwing it properly. Now, I'm going to give you the better way so that you can throw that javelin the way Jesus throws the javelin. Welcome to the new covenant. That which outthrows the law and truly pleases God. So what fulfills the law? What satisfies righteousness? And what truly brings glory to God? Answer that question your soul. Let me go through the list again. What fulfills the law? What satisfies righteousness? What truly brings glory to God? Is it your works? Is it your ability to keep the code? Is that which fulfills the law? What satisfies righteousness? There's a demand of righteousness. What will satisfy that? Is it your life? Is it your excellence of behavior? Is that what is going to truly please God? What truly brings glory to God? God answers that question. He answers it over and over and over again. Let's not miss it. So we're going to call this the superiority of love. Love is that which fulfills, that which satisfies, that which completes. Everything that love is solves the riddle. That's why Paul says, look, guys, I'm going to show you the way to throw the javelin. It's the way God intended us to do it. However, because of our weakness and frailty of flesh and the sinful disposition we were in, we were unable to do this. But Jesus has made a way for you to actually have the Spirit now so that you can return to the ancient way of Adam when he was first created to actually function and be the mountain upon which the gemstone rests. You can show forth the glory of God. We're the church. We're the mountain. We're no longer just the Jewish Commonwealth, we are the church of Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction between them. It's not like there's some church over here that's Jews and there's some church over here that's Christians. It's the church. And that church is the mountain. The singular, lone mountain through which the manifold wisdom of God will be revealed to the heavenlies. There's only one way. And it's not through the law. It's through the new covenant church that has been born anew in Jesus Christ 
filled with the life of the Spirit, heeding the Spirit and not the flesh. And as a result, the law is truly seen, the law of liberty, the higher law. The superiority of love. Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Sabbath day, and they're doing that? What are you doing, guys? And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and at the showbread and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. That's a good, good point. Doesn't that make you a little awkward? And you're like, Jesus, are you sort of neglecting this? I mean, you're born, you created that law. Why are you neglecting it here? Jesus is going to give his reasons. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? I'm going to come back to that statement. I'm going to read it again, and then I'll come back to it later. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? In other words, they violate the very Sabbath that they are enforcing, but they're blameless. They're deemed blameless by God. Why? Because their work is a higher work. It is very, very important that you recognize that something is taking place here that is hinting at a greater work, something that is beyond. It's beyond the law. And Jesus is pointing to that in his argument. Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. There is one greater than the first. There is one greater than the mountain. The gem is here, guys. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They're trying to set him up, guys. You see, they know what law is. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That they might accuse him. Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value than, than is a man than a sheep? Therefore, listen to this line. It's one of the biggest lines in the New Testament right here on this point. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Oh, on a Sabbath he did it. Healed them all? It is lawful to do that which is good on the Sabbath. Key line. The Sabbath is a placeholder for the moral law. Those of you that have a background in Sabbath know that. The argument is, well, it's in the moral code, so therefore it's still dictatorial today because it is moral. Yes. Jesus is saying the fulfillment of the law is not keeping the Sabbath as much as it is doing good on that Sabbath. It is doing God's work. It is fulfilling the nature of love in every situation. Someone's dying. You don't stop helping because it's the Sabbath. The Sabbath is there to actually help us see the Messiah, to help us understand his ways and his nature. Law is good. There is nothing wrong with law in and of itself. However, when the gemstone comes, may we not trip over the law and let the man die. May we not stop short of doing that which is love. Because of law. Love fulfills. It doesn't transgress the Sabbath, but it actually fulfills it. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. 
Listen to this, my subtitle. It is lawful to do that which is more excellent always. I don't care what day of the week it is, in what circumstance and what situation. In other words, for those of you that want to say, well, that, that means there's liberty. If we're not under law, that means we could do whatever we want. Well, the, Paul goes way out of his way to say, do not use your liberty as another opportunity for the flesh. Don't go back to sinful, controlled living. You are set at liberty so that you can now serve God and follow his law of love, his law of liberty, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. You have gone from the law of gravity to the law of aerodynamics. It's a higher law. In other words, God says, you must fly. And you're trying to fly, but you can't. And then Paul says, I'll show you a more excellent way. Get into the plane. You enter into the plane, you enter into another law. It's not an absence of law. It's a higher law. And the law says, rest in me. Sit down. Let me do the flying for you. And when you do, it's not that you transgress the law that you were originally assigned to fly. That was the assignment. You must fly. All you were doing was transgressing it when you were here under the law of gravity. But now you can fulfill it. Now you're flying. In other words, you're going to love. You're not going to steal. You're not going to... uh, murder. You're not going to be killing people. This is not how you do it. You love your brother. You love others. And guess what? You're flying. You're in a higher law. But this old law of gravity no longer has hold over you. It's annulled in its power. It no longer has the control over your life. You do not submit to it. You submit to the higher law. And as a result, you fulfill all righteousness. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. What's that doing here? If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Listen to this. Against such, there is no law. When you're walking in the nature of Jesus Christ in accordance with the Spirit, guess what? The law has no hold on you. It doesn't say, hey, you can't do, oh, no, hey, you only take 10 steps on the Sabbath, then you have to sit down. Oh, we need to do a ceremonial cleansing, otherwise you'll be unclean. It doesn't say that. It sets you free from the law when you walk in love. When you walk in Christ, you are free. So these Corinthians were right. We have liberty in Christ Jesus. The law is annulled in its control and power and position over us because the gemstone has come. However, we're not free to just do whatever we want. We're now free to fulfill the law of love. Against such, there is no law. There is no law against the Spirit. The Spirit has full liberty and freedom. It has no prohibitions. Where the Spirit goes, you follow. And the Spirit may have you heal on a Sabbath day. And guess what? You do it without any impunity, without any conscionable uh, distraction. You do it because the Spirit of God is leading you to love and to serve. The strange blamelessness. This is that one scripture I pointed to. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? That's a strange way to be blameless profaning the Sabbath and yet considered blameless? Why? Because they're doing the work of the ministry. When you're doing the work of the greater ministry, remember this ministry that Jesus received, which was a greater ministry? It has exceeded the previous ministry of the priests? How much more so when we're doing the work of Jesus and doing that ministry are we held blameless by the judgment of the law, which is lesser so than the gemstone that we're serving? We serve the gemstone. That's what matters. We are not held accountable to the previous mounting which has been displaced by a greater mounting. Our mounting is known as Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We find our life in that and that's where the spirit of God dwells and carries us forward. And as we heed that, we will fulfill all righteousness. They violate a letter 
but not the spirit. You see, when Ahithophel was giving the bread to David, he was violating a letter of the law. However, Jesus Christ in the New Testament commends him. You know that a man named Doeg uh, was there to witness this? Doeg was an Edomite. An Edomite is a descendant of Esau, the first. And Saul is the first king. Doeg comes to Saul and says, you wouldn't believe what I saw. Ahithophel supported David, even with the sacred showbread. What does Doeg do under the rulership of Saul but slays all the priests? Well, yeah, that's about right. Those that are built upon the letter and are adherents to the letter instead of to the spirit will actually kill the workers of righteousness. That's the cross of Jesus Christ right there. Who killed them? Pharisees, Sadducees, the priests, the scribes. Those that kept the law, may we not be those that miss out on the better way, that do not see our void and our lack and our need for that gemstone. So, and in heeding the spirit, they fulfill the law. So the, the priests, in heeding the spirit, by doing what is lawful truly in heaven's eyes, are actually fulfilling the law. Love, that behavior which is absent of self-interest and wholly occupied with another's gain. That's just a good definition for you of love. It's that behavior which is absent of self-interest and wholly occupied with another's gain. You live that way, and guess what? God says, that's right. However, you can't live that way without him. That's the fruit of the Spirit. You can't bear that on your own, in your own work. So therefore, yes, you'll please God if you live that way, but you can't live that way unless you give up your life to God and let him have it and let him control it and let him live in and through it. God is love, just in case you were wondering. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the motive of God all throughout the ages. God didn't change himself in the new covenant and fix himself up and say, oh boy, I had it really wrong in the old. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. So God is not an improvement upon himself in the new covenant. He's always been love. This has always been the means of pleasing him. And therefore, in the Old Testament, when you see those examples of men and women that even though they violate letter, actually fulfill all righteousness, that's exactly what this is. And Jesus is referring to that even in his life. The external hallmark of God's chosen. Surprisingly, it's no longer circumcision. Of course, that's what the new covenant says. It's no longer an external circumcision that you will know, my disciples. It's a cutting off of the flesh of the heart. It's a circumcision of the heart that is not made with hands. It's made by the Spirit of God. So you can tell a believer because the Spirit of God is working on them to cut off that old nature. That, that fleshly dimension of them is now removed and it's circumcised so that they can now be a new creation in Christ Jesus, which is marked by love. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Paul's saying, look, if I'm still preaching you to the law, I wouldn't be persecuted right now. The reason I'm being persecuted is I don't preach circumcision. I don't preach that you keep the law. Then the offense of the cross has ceased. You see, the cross is an offense because it does put the law in its place. It says that is insufficient. But if you worship the law, guess what? That's going to come as an offense to you. If you find your righteousness in legal living, then it will be an offense to you if it says your righteousness stinks. Well, I don't want to hear that. My righteousness is good. Look at that. I kept this. I did this. I did this. And Paul had to come to that conclusion himself. The Pharisee of Pharisees who was persecuted in the church because of this very offense suddenly sees the light, no pun intended, and he awakens to the reality of his need and the gemstone's ability to save him. 
And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. You've been called to freedom. You're not called to stay under the law. You're actually called to be freed from that. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. There it is. You've been called to liberty. The old law, the Torah, no longer is your master. You have a new master, which is Jesus Christ. But do not use your freedom from the law to just go back and live in your debauchery. But now use it to love. Of course, this is the context for the fruit of the Spirit, by the way. Look at what book it is. It's Galatians 5. Same chapter even. For all the laws fulfilled in one word. What's that one word? Paul, tell us. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the same message throughout the New Testament. If you really fulfill the royal law, well, what's the royal law? Remember Jesus? I give you a new commandment. According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, then you're doing well. You see, that is the right way of living. This is how you fulfill the royal law. Owe no, man, owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, so you can add yours to the list, because it says, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, what Jesus is doing, which says, I'm giving you a new commandment, is he's saying, I'm giving you a greater mountain, and the old mountain is just inside of it, okay? In other words, it's not, a, it's not kicking it out. It's saying, oh yeah, I changed my nature. No longer do I care about purity. No longer do I care about kindness. God isn't changing, but he's giving a better way. And it's all summed up in you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Christ, so who is the more excellent way? He's known as the way to the Father. It's Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Jesus is both the gem and the perfect mountain. I know that sounds a little contradictory, doesn't it? When I say that uh, he's the gemstone and the law has been waiting for him for all these years. Well, here's what I'm going to say. You remember that bigger mountain, the gold one? You know, it was like double the size of the, the previous one. Well, that's Jesus. And you can say, I thought Jesus was a gem. Well, he is. That's the glory of God. He's the full revelation of the Father. He's the gem. He's Jehovah. He's the I am. When you see Jesus, you see the gem. He is the gem. He's one with the Father. So he's the gem. And he's also the one that came to this earth and held up that glory the way a man ought to hold it up. He fulfilled the mounting job. He did it in perfect righteousness. A, a, a mounting is supposed to hold up a gemstone. Guess who did it? Jesus did it. And so, Jesus was the perfect mounting. He is the gem, don't get me wrong. And the law recognizes Moses and Elijah, John the Baptist, all testify to that. This is the one we've been waiting for. But he also was a man. And as a man, though he was God, he lived as a man, and he fulfilled perfect righteousness, but not the righteousness just of the old covenant, but the righteousness of the law of liberty, the royal law, 
that he himself gave. He fulfilled it to perfection. And as a result, he became the perfect mountain. So when we enter into Jesus, we enter into the perfect mountain. We are not justified by that law. We are justified by his righteousness, which is a greater, exceeding righteousness, so far hyperbolized beyond the righteousness of the law. And that's the righteousness in which we stand. So there's Jesus. And you know, that, that little old uh, legal letter in the, in the inside that was weakened because of the flesh? Look at that as you for a second. You see, when you enter into Jesus, it's just sort of that position of trust. Are you really the one that's holding up the glory of God? Not really. But you're in the one who can. And as a result, the Father receives you into his kingdom and in his throne room of grace as if you, in fact, are the perfect mountain. And all righteousness is satisfied in you. What begins in the spirit, don't, don't go and try and complete in the flesh. Don't go back to the law when you've been set free by a higher law, by Jesus Christ. Use the Old Testament as an understanding. Use the law as a means, as a Christophany, something that shows you the beauty and the grandeur of that. But remember where the law sits. The law has been fulfilled and has been silenced. John the Baptist is no longer needed when the Messiah is seen. And as a result, his ministry ceases. And by the way, he was silenced. In other words, that ministry silences up to the time of Jesus. So when Jesus comes, the new commandment is given. The greater, more excellent ministry begins. And the javelin really flies. The throwing beyond. So finally, our final scripture. You are complete in him. Who is the head, who sits in the gallery, of all principality and power. How do you work as an individual life? How will you succeed? Because the law hangs over you. And unless you can perfectly show righteousness, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you have no hope. And yet as Christians, guess what? Our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. Did you see the picture? Oops. Look at that. There's the Pharisees down there. Our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. Not because it's ours, it's his. Yet inside of that righteousness, we are given the spirit of God to grow up and to begin to bear witness and to showcase that gold, to show his perfect nature. We don't live for self. We don't live for the flesh. We have a head. And what that head says, we do. He has given us the pattern, and now we simply must submit and follow. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellersley.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.